Israel Story is sponsored by Talkspace, the online therapy company. For a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, you can pick an experienced, licensed therapist you can relate to and feel comfortable with. Each and every therapist has at least a master's degree and has completed over 3,000 hours of supervised work. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com Israel. And to show your support for this podcast, use code Israel to get $30 off your first month. That's code Israel and Talkspace.com Israel. Support also comes from Oscilloscope Laboratories and their new film, Bobby Jean, an award-winning documentary from filmmaker Elvira Lind. After a decade of stardom in Israel with the world-famous Batsheva Dance Company, American dancer Bobby Jean Smith decides to leave behind the love of her life and her star position to return to the U.S. to create her own boundary-breaking art. Tracking the personal and professional challenges that await her, Bobby Jean delves into what it takes for an artist to gain her own independence in the extremely competitive world of dance, and to find self-fulfillment in the process. More information at bobbyjean.oscilloscope.net That's B-O-B-B-I-J-E-N-E dot oscilloscope.net And now, to our episode. For lack of a better way to describe it, I'd say that my high school English class was more of an exercise in shelling, blasting, and precision artillery. Repeat than in grammar, vocab, and reading comprehension. Map. Map. Picture. Picture. Umbrella. Umbrella. Okay, let me back up. Good. On September 1st, 1998, I found myself walking into a new school on the first day of 10th grade, not knowing a soul. One of my first friends was another new kid, Ariel, Ariel Arpaz. Ariel and I met in English class. We were both in Dovran Glit, the English speakers section, and I knew we'd be friends from day one. He was, and still is, the craziest kid I've met. Our English class met on Mondays for a double period, separated by a 20-minute long recess. Ariel and I sat next to each other at the back of the classroom, and almost immediately we took heavy fire from Aviv Pongil, a mischievous Australian kid who had made us practice targets for his mechanical pencil turned spitball gun. Ariel and I tried to retaliate, but it was clear that we were no match for Aviv's mini-bombs. And then, towards the middle of the year, Everything changed when Ariel got his license and bought a red Kimco motorcycle. Now, this was big news. Ariel was one of the only kids in our grade who had a bike, and it made him instantly popular. But as far as English class was concerned, the implications were even more dramatic. We could now leave school during the break, hop on his motorcycle, drive to the nearby central bus station, buy 150 grams of chocolate-covered raisins, otherwise known as ammunition, drive back to school and spend the entire second period pelting the back of Aviv's head with the candy. Now, other than the fact that Ariel drove so fast that I would literally kiss the ground when we got back to school, this was pure joy. 
For the rest of the year, we turned our English classes into a never-ending food fight. We perfected our aim, Aviv perfected his aim, and the ensuing mayhem would test the limits of our teacher, who, ironically, was called Ivria, which means the Hebrew one. Till one day, it all came to an abrupt end. An errant chocolate-covered almond, that wasn't even supposed to be in the bag with the raisins, hit the girl sitting next to Aviv. I nearly got expelled. Game over. Ariel and I left the world of food fights for good. Or at least, so I thought. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. Our episode today, Food Fight. Forget politics, forget territorial disputes, forget religion. We give you two stories about the real arena in which matters are battled out here in the Middle East. Food. Our first story, about a Jerusalemite's quirky obsession, couldn't be more local. And our second story is the exact opposite. It's an outsider's take. An impression of a visitor, a radio icon, on her first ever trip to the region. Alright, let's begin. Less than a month after we graduated high school, we all went into the army. Just by chance, Ariel, my English class partner in crime, was drafted into the same unit as two of my closest childhood friends, Shai Satran and Yochai Meital, who years later would create Israel Story with me. They all became good friends, so Ariel's always been part of the show's orbit. He even made a cameo appearance in one of our earliest stories, about self-inflicting bee stings as a way of getting sick days from the army. But as we all learned over the years, the epic bombardments with Aviv Pongir were nothing more than child's play for Ariel. This whole time he was actually engaged in a much more important food fight. A high-stakes food fight. A crusade for recognition. Act 1. The Pitcher A few weeks ago, on a hot Friday morning of midsummer. Shai and I met up with our friend Ariel. He wanted to fill us in on a story, and then we were going to go to his favorite hummus joint, Pinati. Pinati is an iconic workers' restaurant on the corner of King George and Aistadrut streets, in the center of Jerusalem. Here's Ariel. It's important to say that Pinati is known for its hummus, and it's probably the best hummus in Jerusalem. And it's definitely the best Jewish hummus that I've come across. And we should just say that Pinati, it's just like one small room. Yeah, Pinati is a place that has four tables inside, and each table has five seats. Uh, it's actually four seats, and they can squeeze in five. And you sit with people you don't know as you eat. But Pinati is much more than just a dive. It's a Jerusalem institution. Local politicians go there to appear connected to the people. Famous athletes pop by for hummus after practice. And for the past two decades, it is also regularly fed one extremely loyal client, Mr. Ariel Harpaz. Uh, we used to cut school and go to Pinati every day. And it was then, over countless plates of hummus in the late 90s, that Ariel noticed a problem. He was constantly thirsty. I used to drink a lot of cups of juice while we were eating. Calling the phosphorescent petal liquid served at Pinati juice might be a bit misleading. As Ariel pointed out, petal is more like the Israeli version of Kool-Aid. 
It's a, a very cheap syrup that uh, you add water to. And in Pinati, you have two flavors. You've got one a grape flavor and you've got a lemon flavor. And it's uh, usually you, each cup is two shekels. But although two shekels wasn't that much, even for a high school kid, it started adding up. Always the businessman, Ariel, went up to the owner, Meir, who sits at the cash register, and asked how much it would cost to get unlimited petel refills. Now, Meir's not one for change. In fact, Pinati's menu basically hasn't changed at all since Meir's father opened the place in 1974. But Ariel was a good kid, and clearly a thirsty kid. So uh, he thought about it for a few seconds, and then he said, it'll cost you eight shekels, and you have a limited amount of uh, petel. Needless to say, Ariel was thrilled. But it didn't take long before he noticed that the new unlimited refills policy solved the monetary problem, but introduced an interpersonal one instead. He kept on handing the waiters his empty cup, till more or less all they did was bounce like yo-yos between the juice dispenser and Ariel's table. I felt bad that I kept on harassing them for more and more and more uh, juice. So I came to the owner and I asked him, can, can we change this deal from unlimited juice to uh, a pitcher of juice? At first, Meir claimed he didn't have a pitcher. But Ariel asked him to check again. So he goes behind to the storage room and he, I see like things are flying, you know, he's moving tables and uh, boxes and stuff and he finds a pitcher. So he brings back the pitcher and now I have a pitcher. We're talking about a very cheap plastic pitcher. It's like half a gallon uh, of, of juice. And so, thanks to Ariel's sheer doggedness, a new item at Pinati was born. Or sort of. See, every time Ariel would come in for some hummus, which was very often, he'd ask the waiters for a pitcher. And the waiters always said, we don't have a pitcher. We don't know what we're talking about. And every time was the same story. So I had to look at the owner, and the owner would catch me in my eye and said, ah, him, give him everything he wants. Give him anything he wants. And then I, they would go back and get me my pitcher, and, you know, and this went on for like a year, a year and a half, every time I had to prove to them that they have a pitcher and I deserve it. Because it wasn't on the menu. It wasn't on the menu. So it was like one of these items that like only real regulars, people in the know, would know to ask. No, it was only me for a long time. <laughs> in an unprecedented move, Meir officially modified Pinati's offerings. And Ariel was, for all intents and purposes, the father of the pitcher. That was his claim to fame. Many people who know me, I mean, at some point will hear this story. This is a part of who I am. And he's very proud of it. I mean, I invented a concept. You realize that, like, pitcher is something that exists in many, many places around the world. What I invented was not a pitcher. I invented the option to change something in Pinati, the open-mindedness to change. I brought change to Pinati. For years, he's been telling us that he regards this as the pinnacle of his creative life. This is definitely one of the most important and greatest achievements of my life. I don't know if that means I haven't achieved much or this is just really important. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> now, the walls of Pinati, like many family-run restaurants or dry cleaners in the States, are full of pictures of all kinds of celebrities who walk through the door posing with the owner. But here it's not about bragging rights for the establishment. In Pinati's case, it's the folks in the photographs who are dying to be seen on the wall. 
prime ministers, actors, any person who is who and who in Jerusalem, or if he came from the big city, Tel Aviv, he usually gets uh, awarded as well. It's sort of like a sign that you've made it if you get on the wall in Pinati, right? Yeah, there's no bigger respect in Jerusalem than having a picture in Pinati on the wall. Pinati, as you'll recall, is a really small place, and there isn't that much wall real estate. That means that competition to make it onto the wall is fierce. Even Teddy Kolick and Bibi have been bumped. Only Herzl and Begin, Meir recently told me, have everlasting wall immunity. But Ariel was convinced that as the inventor of the picture, he should be up there, immortalized. For him, more than anything, it was a matter of recording his accomplishment for posterity. I need to have a picture on the wall with my picture to prove for the rest of history that I invented the picture. And this is why this story is so important, because I don't have children. This is the closest I have to children, is to have a picture in Pinati. Ariel made his case to Meir, the owner, who mulled it over. I just want to point out one thing about Meir. Meir is like this very old-fashioned Kurdish Jew, very typical Jerusalemite. He knows everyone, and he's basically a celebrity in, in Jerusalem. And he's really amazing with people, and he's really, really street smart. By the time Meir decided, after much deliberation, to grant him this tremendous honor, Ariel was already in the army, and the matter got postponed a bit. But ultimately, he came in and posed for the camera. Can you describe the picture? The picture is a picture of one of my friends, the owner, Meir, and me with a picture that proves beyond doubt that I'm the inventor of the picture. Yet life, and an uncomfortable dispute among Ariel's friends as to who should be included next to him in the picture, got in the way. As a result, the photo never went up on the wall. Meanwhile, Ariel moved away, first to Tel Aviv, then abroad. He studied law, started businesses, and many years later, he returned to his old stomping ground. At this point, I haven't been to Pinati like five, six, seven years. And I was going out with this chick, and we go to Pinati, and we come especially from Tel Aviv. It was a Friday afternoon, which is the busiest time of the week at Pinati, when all the soldiers coming home for the weekend pop in for a quick hummus. So anyway, we get to Pinati, and I'm standing outside, and like suddenly one of the waiters sees me, and he comes and he hugs me, and then a different waiter looks at me, and he sees me, and he comes and hugs me, and then the owner sees me, and he comes and kisses me, and I'm feeling like, you know, a lot of respect and love in my way, and I'm really excited. You know, this is Pinati, and I mean, this was an important place for me, you know, growing up. The real reason Pinati is so successful is because Meir makes you feel so important when you come there. It's like where everybody knows your name and they're, all, they're always glad you came. So with that royal homecoming reception, Ariel and his date sat down to eat. And we order. And then Meir, the owner, comes by me and asks him, do people still order uh, pictures here? And then he looks at me and he says, what? You're disgusted with what I'm saying. Everybody orders pictures. It's the biggest thing here. And then he walks away. And as he walks away, I realize that this guy, it seems like he's not crediting me for inventing the picture. Ariel was stunned. His fear had come true. His invention had been forgotten. Not only did he embarrass me in front of my girlfriend, I'm like sitting there just like shocked. I mean, I feel like he spat in my face. Ariel, you might have already ascertained, is not one to take a perceived slight lightly. Especially not when it comes to something as weighty as his liquid legacy. I look at him and I tell him, Meir, 10 years ago, I came here, 
אריאל went on to recount how that had led to him harassing the waiters for constant refills, and how he came up with the idea of the pitcher. He reminded Mayer that even after the invention, it was always a struggle. And Mayer would have to instruct his waiters to give Ariel whatever he wanted, till they decided to make it official with a picture on the wall, which never went up. And the reason we did all this was so I don't come here 10 years later and hear this bullshit that you tell me that I didn't invent the picture. He looks at me and then he says, Mechila, mechila, mechila. Kol mila shelcha emet. Ata avia kankan. Ata avia kankan. I ask for your forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. Every word that you spoke is true. You are the father of the, of the pitcher. You are the father of the pitcher. Redeemed, Ariel took his date and went back home. And I realized that I have about four weeks before his memory blacks out again. And uh, this is like my golden time to get the picture back on the wall. He found the image in an old email account and printed out several different options. I don't know if I should do an A4, A5, A6. I just don't know how to deal with this. And I have no one to consult with. Because everybody, first of all, thinks that this is the dumbest story they've ever heard. They can't believe I'm wasting my time on this. Usually I'll talk to like, my business partner and you know, I'll have like, a creative team help me out, work out my problems. But this is just wasting their time on something that only I think is important. Because they're not from Jerusalem. They don't understand the importance of this. He also went back and forth on whether to include a caption. He decided to go for it. To our second home, with love, the father of the picture. Ariel framed the picture, and with a mixture of excitement and trepidation, made another Friday afternoon pilgrimage to Jerusalem. When Ariel walked in, Meir said hi, as usual. But Ariel couldn't tell whether it was because he remembered him as the father of the pitcher, or else was just being friendly. He always remembers me as a person. Like He says hello and he knows me, but he doesn't remember my name or why he knows me. We need to tattoo on him that I invented the pitcher. Ariel sat down, ordered a hummus, and of course a pitcher of petel, and took his time. And then uh, I wait until the place is almost empty, and I come to him and I say, remember what we said? And I pull out the picture, and he says, sure, no problem, like fully nonchalant, as if it's like most normal thing and no problem at all. And then he said, leave it here, I'll put it up tomorrow night. And I look at him, I said, tomorrow night? It's like Saturday night, the pinati isn't even open on Saturday night. Feeling that something was a bit fishy, Ariel became adamant. What? He said impatiently. I came especially. I'm not waiting, we have to do this now. So he said, but I can't, people are eating next to the spot. Ariel asked Meir where he intended to hang his picture. Meir pointed to the corner, where an Orthodox couple were finishing up their meal. Maybe the worst real estate on the wall. What made it bad real estate? This spot is, as you walk in, it's on the far left, and it's on the, on the far low corner. Far left, low corner. So no one, it's not visible to everyone eating, because if somebody's sitting next to it, you can't see it. But on the other hand, it's not that far from the juice dispensers. Yes, it, it actually is the closest uh, picture to the juice dispenser. Which is itself kind of an honor. It, I... I the fact that it's next to the juice dispenser, I mean, it's maybe, I mean, from the poetic point of view, is beautiful, but it means nothing because you want a good real estate inside the place. Ariel was disappointed, no doubt. But he tried to console himself. After all, he was so close now. Inside, I'm trying to convince myself that it's okay, that we know, I mean, every real estate is good on the wall in Pinati, and I can't be a pig. <sighs> After so many years, Ariel's dream was coming true. 
His picture went up on the wall of Pinati. And then we had like a whole five, ten minutes of me and my friends and different people around taking pictures of my picture on the wall with Meir, without Meir, posing. And you can see in the pictures that I'm very proud. I send this on WhatsApp to all my family and friends and like this is like a glorious day for me. In fact, I remember receiving those pictures from Ariel at the time and imagining just how happy he must be. You can see them too, by the way, on our website. Anyway, just before leaving Pinati, a jubilant, if always practical Ariel, did one last thing. I looked at Meir in the eye, and I pointed at him, and I told him, Meir, I don't want to come here in 20 years and find out that uh, your son is running the place and is telling me that I didn't invent the picture. Therefore, the picture needs to stay on the wall. And he said, don't worry, don't worry, no problem, no problem. Famous last words. I promised myself that I'm going to continue going to Pinati every once in a while to supervise that my picture is still on the wall. You had doubts? Um, yeah, I had doubts. Because, I mean, if somebody different comes in now, more important, I mean, they might switch your picture. I mean, who knows? But the next few times Ariel came to check, he was pleased to see his smiling self in the far left corner holding up his brainchild, the pitcher. It seemed as if Ariel could relax. His legacy was safe. A few months ago, I got a flurry of frantic text messages from Ariel. He had just learned, to his utter astonishment, that his picture was no longer on the wall, and he wanted our help. You see, Ariel thought that showing up at Pinati with the radio crew might not only increase his chances of getting back on the wall, but could potentially even land him a better spot, right behind Mail, at the cash register. And that's how Shai and I found ourselves, on that sweltering Friday morning, helping Ariel reclaim his rightful place in history. So we're, we're now in a strategy, a planning strategy conversation about what's going to happen. And Shai, uh, myself and Ariel are in the studio, we're about to go to Pinati, it's Friday afternoon. So the first thing once we're there is to check on your real estate and see what's there? That's shy. No, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to sit down and order a hummus and relax. Are we going to order a pitcher? We will. Oh, by the way, important thing, the pitcher these days has changed. It's like a high-tech pitcher and has maybe a sixth, like 15% juice of the original one. How does that make you feel as the father of the pitcher? I have no problem with male's economics. It's fine with me. As long as there's a picture and I'm acknowledged as the inventor. Because you know, a lot of people, they're like, if they invent something, they're really particular about it staying exactly the way they invented it. No, no, I'm, uh, I don't, I'm not, I mean, I invented a concept. Shai, who was an officer in the army, was eager to get back to the nitty-gritty planning. Do we need to, like, plot this out, like, military style? Do we need, like, matarot, uh, misimot? Like, what's the overarching goal? Okay, the number one objective is to get this back on the wall. We're going to see if we manage to get it behind Meir, better positioned. And if not, we're going to accept it, and we're going to take any space we're th- that we're offered. If my picture stays on the wall in general in Pinati, and specifically behind Meir, for the rest of my life, I will be credited as the father of the picture, and I can die quietly. What we're doing today is setting the record straight. Do you think we're going to succeed? I have no doubt in my heart. The picture is going up on the wall. With that, three childhood friends in their mid-30s set out on a mission. Like any good commander, 
Ariel gave us a final briefing. We're going to arrive to Pinati. Uh, we're going to be sitting at the table. I want all the equipment to be out, the radio equipment, the recording equipment. I want Mayor to be aware that there's uh, something happening, that there are journalists sitting and eating lunch. And we, like good soldiers, ask some clarifying questions. So if he comes to the table and says, hey, Ariel, want a picture? We can start talking about the picture? I mean, if it's up to us, we wait till the end, uh, we finish eating, we understand who's against who, and then we, we attack the problem. Yep, that's us, about to attack the problem. Okay, so we're entering, we're entering Pinati. Everyone seemed genuinely glad to see Ariel. We sat down and casually ordered some hummus. Should we get a pitcher? Betach. Sure, Ariel said. Mail. When we were done eating, Ariel approached Meir. Once again, he relayed the entire saga. Everything he says is true, Meir acknowledged. But I have a problem. There's a waiting list for getting on the wall. It was clear that Ariel wasn't going to take no for an answer. And Chai and I exchanged a worried glance, hoping this wasn't about to get out of hand. It can't be that I don't get credit for my invention, Ariel complained. It got a bit testy, and Meir even called Ariel a nudnik, basically a pain in the ass. Ariel in turn said that Meir should be ashamed of himself. But then, realizing that his best way out of this situation was probably just to give in, Meir got up on a chair, found a tiny square of bare wall underneath the fluorescent light, and started banging in a nail. Seeing his picture back up there, a huge smile appeared on Ariel's face. Are you happy? Meir asked as they hugged it out. We're like family, he said. And just before we left, unsolicited, he promised Ariel that the picture would stay up. This time, for good. We made it. Arpaz, any last words? I want to thank everyone who helped me get this, uh, just helped me get here. Thank you guys. It was dirty and ugly, but it worked. Israel Story is sponsored by Amazing Journeys. Amazing Journeys is a travel company offering group trips for Jewish singles. Indulge your passion for discovering new destinations with like-minded travelers from around the world. With more than 10 trips a year, you can celebrate New Year's cruising through the Mexican Riviera, explore the incredible culture, history, and wildlife of South Africa, or experience the magic of nature in the Galapagos Islands and Ecuador. Visit AmazingJourneys.net for a full list of upcoming vacations and get ready for a trip of a lifetime. 
Over the years, Amazing Journeys has taken thousands of Jewish singles to all seven continents. They take the guesswork out of vacation planning, so all you have to do is sit back, relax, and enjoy the journey. Get $100 off your first Amazing Journey by going to AmazingJourneys.net and entering the code ISRAELSTORY. A while back in Chicago, we met up with Davia Nelson, one half of the Amazing Kitchen Sisters podcast. They were just starting to work on a series called Hidden Kitchens, War and Peace and Food. And she asked us what came to mind. We mentioned something you might have heard of, the Hummus Wars between Israel and Lebanon. Now in case you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'll just say that soon after the 2006 Israeli-Lebanese war, fighting moved on to a more appetizing plane. Israel and Lebanon went head-to-head, trying to outdo each other in creating the world's largest plate of hummus. Satellite dishes were involved, as were Guinness World Record officials. When national pride is at stake, nothing, not even ten tons of hummus, is impossible. Davia loved the story, and over the next few months we planned her trip to the region. She had never been here before. But when she arrived, she quickly realized that the story was much greater than just the mash chickpea. We came to Israel, and we were looking for stories of hummus and people making efforts towards peace through hummus, but it became a deeper and larger piece than that. It was people using food as a way towards peace and reconciliation and was sort of a pilgrimage to the country. Davia talked to dozens and dozens of people, Israelis, Palestinians, Lebanese, and returned home to California with hundreds of hours of tape. Several months later, she emerged from the editing room with a beautiful meditation on food, culture, war, and peace. This is a shortened version of her impression. Act 2, Operation Hummus. My name is Fadi Aboud, born in Lebanon. I served as Minister for Tourism. I am the one who led Lebanon to break the Guinness Book of Records by making the largest tub of hummus in the world. We want the whole world to know that hummus and tabbouleh are Lebanese. At the time, there was a chairman of the Industries Association in Lebanon. A group of us just came from a food exhibition in France. Suddenly, they were telling us hummus is an Israeli traditional dish. I mean, you know, the world now thinks that Israel invented hummus. I was rather upset, you know, and I thought the best way to tell the world that hummus is Lebanese is to break the Guinness Book of Records. It gives me great pleasure to award a new Guinness World Record. It was a big issue all over the news, all over, that hummus only Lebanese. They say, no, hummus for everybody. My name is Jawdat Ibrahim. We're in Abu Ghosh restaurant in Abu Ghosh village between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. I, I came with the idea. I hold a meeting in the village and I say, we're going to broke our Guinness World Record. In the town of Abu Ghosh this morning, Israel retook the title for the world's largest hummus dish, weighing four tons, scooped into a seven meter wide satellite dish. Satellite dish. Yeah, this is a dish, no? Media came here and like over 50 TV channels all over the world. More than Obama visited any country. The Lebanese have already heard about this and they're already planning a counterattack. 
We call it the hummus wars, when Lebanon accused the Israeli people of trying to steal the hummus and make it their national dish. Hummus became a symbol. My name is Ronit Verel. I'm a food journalist about the culture of food here in Israel. I live in Tel Aviv. In Israel, we don't have a strong food tradition. This place only exists 60 years. You don't have specific dishes which can be common ground for all the Israelis. So hummus became a common ground. Palestinians also made hummus a symbol that we didn't only take their lands, we take their food as well and make it ours. Hummus is ours. Tabula is our tradition. They take our hummus and they make it their tradition. My name is Nuha Musleh. I'm a Palestinian. I work with a journalist. I'm a fixer. Now we're into Ramallah. We're in the West Bank. People run to get hummus when they're in Ramallah. It's like getting a good pizza downtown Rome or getting a good T-bone steak in Texas. I imagine. I haven't been. The restaurant owner says what distinguishes any hummus from another hummus is nafs, which means soul in Arabic. They pound it, they pound it, they pound it. You don't even use a machine. You use good tahine, sesame seed crushed, sumac, lemons from Jericho, uh, olive oil from from the village of Beit Ula. Palestinians don't mind that Lebanon is proud of its hummus, that uh, Egyptians make hummus. It puts Arabs together. The actual name, hummus, comes from the Arabic for chickpea. Lebanon wanted to register hummus with the European Union for Lebanon. In the way of champagne, parmesan, like the Greeks did with feta cheese. My name is Ari Ariel, author of the article, The Hummus Wars. Part of the problem from the Lebanese perspective was that there were these two large Israeli companies, Strauss and Osem, that were selling most of the prepared hummus in the world. We were not successful in registering hummus for Lebanon. In the first two decades of the state, the Israeli people didn't really eat local food. They stuck to the thing that is close to your heart. It's also a political issue. If I eat Palestinian food, in a way, I acknowledge the fact that they exist, that there are other people here that have food of their own. In the 1950s, the Israeli army started serving hummus in mess halls. And the average Israeli came to know hummus and consider it an everyday food. These foods become more familiar to the European settlers. It become kind of hip, something young people will eat. My name is Daphna Hirsch, faculty member at the Open University of Israel. Hummus is appropriated as the food of the new Sabra, who is rooted in the land, who wears the kofia and, and eats hummus and falafel. <laughs> In Israel, hummus is considered a masculine dish. It's considered a kind of masculine ritual to go, you know, a group of men to the hummusia and 
eating hummus wiping this you know large circular gestures hummus has a community a natural community because it's not merely a dish but more like a subculture I'm Shuki Galili I'm from Tel Aviv and I have a blog about hummus hummus101.com we have many people who want to know about the new places I'm in Jerusalem where should I go hummus unfortunately has become like in the category of fast foods but actually in the Arab and all of Palestine hummus is Friday honorable and appreciated breakfast the father wakes up in the morning makes hummus makes food invites all his daughters his daughters-in-law and his sons it's a way to get together in the morning of a Friday when the family wants to throw all their worries and problems away my name is David Laurent from uh, Tel Aviv in Israel and I'm a taxi driver what does your tattoo say no fear You cannot live in fear in Israel. Some people are afraid to live in a country where there is so much blood and uh, wars and conflict of thousands of years. This conflict is about religion and it will not be over, I think, until religion will be over. Hummus, falafel, food is maybe the only thing that gets people to sit together with different thoughts to eat the same food. This kind of approach which says, "Oh, you know, if we eat hummus together, then peace will come through the stomach and all that. But no, I mean, as, as long as colonization continues, as long as occupation continues, then you know hummus is not going to solve it. Now you can see it's quite a crowd, thousands of people gathered around. The hummus has been made. We broke the Guinness World Record 2010. But to make the hummus is not the issue. Put things together, that's the main thing. People talking about blood and killing, and I want to take it to a different way. People can talk about Middle East nice things. That's just killing and shooting, almost. Nobody gets hurt with this world, you know. This is Davia Nelson at the Kitchen Sisters. It is Friday. We are in Benny's cab on the way to Akko, to Erez Komarovsky's peace lunch. Operation Hummus. War and peace. And food. And food. Great. War and peace. And food. I love this market. It's one of the oldest, it's the most non-touristic, real market, especially in the fall After we have the storms, so the best fish come. Shrimps, calamari. My name is Eris Komorovsky, and I'm a chef, a baker. I don't know what I am, but I cook and I bake, and I have a catering business. I live in the mountains near the Lebanese border. I have my own uh, organic garden. I grow my own veggies, my chickens. I was born in Tel Aviv when I was a city guy all my life. I had restaurants there and bakery and coffee shops and then I decided that enough is enough. Uh, to save my soul, I went to live in nature. And so what is happening today? Today we are doing a fish dinner without knives. Knives is the symbol of uh, the fear. 
They will eat with their hands, so they will be safe. We are trying to do peace and to live together, and to eat together. I think uh, peace is done not in uh, politics, but uh, like us, simple people that cook together. It's nice under the tree. Lunch with no knives, to show that there is no, no reason for the fear. My name is Dan Smulovitz. I'm the chef and owner of Savida in Akko. Uh, we need to attract the people by making a very unique menu and bringing chefs to come over and then to see that nothing happens. Just people want to live their life quietly. And you sit together with people that sometimes you don't know, but you will know them in the lunch. For us, peace is here. We don't wait for the government to be in peace. My name is Ranan Alexandrovitz. I'm a filmmaker. I live in Jerusalem. I was born in 1969, so I'm just two years younger than the occupation. There were still a lot of question marks about the future, a lot more openness between the societies. We would go to eat hummus place in the old city. The man who had the recipe let my mother come into the kitchen and see how it's done. I'm sure she wasn't the only Israeli taught to make it. When we spent a couple of years in the U.S., I remember this image of coming home from school and going into the bathroom and seeing that the bath is filled with chickpeas being soaked and knowing that my mom was going to make hummus and Israelis would come from all over. It was something that they really missed. It's the basic food of the culture that's described as the enemy culture, but it's also the most loved food here. In Israel, in the last couple of decades, there is a really remarkable culinary revolution. The same thing happens in Lebanon, which I didn't have the fortune to go to, but I follow people through Instagram and Facebook in Lebanon and in Jordan. Likes is a, the little man's way of saying, I don't care if there's war between your country and mine. I see what you do there and the food that you cook in Beirut, and I think it's beautiful, and I wish I could taste it. I wish. We would live in a different world. Uh, which pita did you eat? I had the cauliflower. The cauliflower, the, the, whole, cauliflower. the whole cauliflower. Did you like it? Oh, I was ecstatic. It's something amazing. You know, each cauliflower is completely different. Where My name is uh, Eyal Shani. I'm cooking for the last 30 years. wondering what comes to mind when you think about war and peace and food. War and peace. It's, I'm working a lot with vegetables because vegetables got no blood. But when you find it and when you know where to look after it, you can make magic from vegetables. And most of our vegetables we are buying from the Arabs. We are going to Jericho, to Nablus, to Hebron. And we are paying cash money to people and buy vegetables each, every day we are doing that. That is the thing that I can do about well. Says, I want to make a big dinner party and invite people from both sides, but I don't want the leaders. It is possible to have peace with the people. I want to go into the streets and to make the food 
where the Arabs and the Jewish are fighting one against the other. To do kebab or shishlik, they are throwing stones, take a pita. You try to shoot somebody, take a pita. I can solve it. In an hour, there will be no war. Davia Nelson. You can hear a much longer version of this story on the Kitchen Sisters website, kitchensisters.org, or on their podcast feed. We'll also link to it on our site. And that's our episode. You can hear all our previous episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on iTunes and any of the other main podcast platforms. If you can, it would be great if you took a moment to rate us and write a review on iTunes. That really helps us reach new listeners. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And if you too would like to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, it's easy. Simply drop us a line at sponsor at prx.org. If you happen to be in the area, do Ariel a favor. Go to Pinati and ask to see his picture. That way Meir will think twice before ever taking it down. As I mentioned last time, we're coming back to the States in January 2018 with one of our favorite live shows, Roomies, Stories of Living Together. So if you want us to come perform in your city, town, or community, email us at livetour at israelstory.org. The music in our first story, about Ariel's Pinati Crusade, was composed and performed by our newest team member, Ari Wenig. The episode was mixed by Sela Weisblum. Thanks to Rachel Fisher, Shoshi Shmulovitz, Benny Becker, Aviva de Kornfeld, Esther Werdiger, Nomi Schneider, and Federica Sasso. And of course to our great friends at the Kitchen Sisters. Davia Nelson, Nikki Silva, Nathan Dalton, Jim McKee, and Brandy Howell. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Maya Kosover, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Zev Levi, and our new cohort of amazing production interns, Hannah Barg, Ari Wenig, and Yuli Shiloach. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back before you know it with a new Israel Story episode. So till then, Shana Tova, and Yalla Bye! <laughs> Shaksho <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Homos mit dem Tem, 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 Homos mit dem Tem, 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 Homos mit dem Tem, 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 כל הזמן אתה מדבר על חומוס, תביא משהו עם ביצים. עם ביצים, ביצים! תביא משהו עם ביצים! יאללה! על כן אומרים לא, על לא אומרים כן, המוח מנוטרל מתחיל לדמיין, כל חרטא ברטא ממש מעצבן, מקבלים את הקריטה מסדים של שמפן, את החומוס לא רואים, בצילום רנקן, מתאים לאכול חומוס ששומעים זהב הבן, מגישים חומוס עם חינה פטרוזיליה בשמן, בתופית עוד חמוד שמוצאים מטוס רבן, מעבדים מעצורים ואדם מתחמם, החומוס שבבטם גורם מה שגורם, אפילו אשכנזים מתחילים להתאמן Dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-